0: Welcome to the Hale Report. This is Lyric Hughes-Hale, Editor-in-Chief of EconView. We are in a podcast series that is located in Chicago, and we welcome you today, January 18th, 2021. Our guest today is William Overholt. Dr. Overholt is an expert in U.S.-China relations. He's now Senior Research Fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government He was previously at uh, Rand Corporation, where he was the uh, head of the Center for Asia-Pacific Policy and spent 21 years in investment banking, working as the head of strategy at Nomura's regional headquarters in Hong Kong. He's a prolific writer, and I think he's writing a new book. We'll ask you to tell us more about that um, as we talk together. And he is also um, the principal at his own firm, asia Strat LLC. So um, I'd like to welcome Bill. Bill, we've known each other a while and I've been meaning to ask you um, a question. How did you originally get interested in Asia? I ask this of many of, my, uh, of the people I interview and I find I, there's some, um, sometimes some good stories around that.
1: About the time I graduated from high school, my father took a position with a small university in the Philippines, Central Philippine University, in a town called Iloilo. And so I accompanied him there for a year. I was planning to be a mathematician or mathematical physicist, but I got there and It turned out I knew more math and physics than any of the local professors. So I studied Philippine dancing for a year.
0: (laughs) That's amazing.
1: It's the only time I've ever been first in my class. And I spent a lot of time with missionaries up in the hills uh, where there were some very primitive tribes. And I discovered there were things in the world that were at least as interesting as math.
0: So that's how you got the Asia bug, was through Philippine dancing. Yes. Well, that is, I, that is the mo- I think, the most unusual story I have heard. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to ask you to share some photographs of that sometime. <laughs> no, but that's, that's a delightful story. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, you know, I thought it was really particularly appropriate to ask you to um, speak with us this inauguration week um, as we might be having experiencing a change in U.S.-China policy. And, you know, going from the Obama administration and then the pivot to, you know, the pivot that was supposed to take place to Asia, um, what happened with the Trump administration, and now looking to the future. So thinking about those questions, I saw an article that you wrote for The Wire, China, um, called Myths and Realities in Sino-American Relations. And um, I think this might be a great way to approach understanding what might happen in the future. But you, ta- you have six myths, I believe, and I wonder if you'd mind talking to us about them and how you see the world maybe a little bit differently um, than others, and you know how this might impact future policy, so your first myth is that um President Trump said that cutting off all relations with China would save us five hundred billion dollars, and um can you tell us why that didn't happen?
1: Well, President Trump thought that, along with his advisor, Peter Navarro, who should have known better that The trade deficit is a measure of relative benefits from trade between two countries. And uh, any economist knows that that's not correct. Uh, The famous example is that if uh, China assembles the pieces of a Nike shoe for for Nike and sends them back to the United States uh, it, the trade balance shows plus $100 for China and minus 100 for the US but actually only $2 of benefits stay in China for assembling the shoe and most of the rest of the the benefits uh, go to the us for designing, marketing, financing, uh, all the all the other things uh, other than assembly. So, uh, based on this misconception, Trump focused on the trade deficit and launched this trade war that was supposed to bring manufacturing jobs home and uh, benefit Americans. And the result of his trade war was that manufacturing employment went down in the United States because, for instance, raising the price of steel had a small benefit for the steel companies, but a huge cost for things like car companies that actually employed far more people. So his policies tremendously increased the trade deficit, decreased manufacturing employment, and raised costs for American families, the cost of living, uh, between $600 and $1,200 per person.
0: So what you're saying is we, we were looking at the, an entirely incorrect metric to measure what we were doing, and it was counterproductive, I guess, in fact, for U.S. interests. Yes. So your next myth, our engagement with China, and this is is one of my favorites, was based on this idea that um, economic engagement would lead to political liberalization in China. And if that's not going to happen, then um, the engagement has failed and should be reversed.
1: Yes, uh, and that's uh, that myth is uh, very widely promulgated by uh, President-elect B- Biden's new Asia Policy Coordinator, Kurt Campbell. He and Eli Ratner wrote an article in Foreign Affairs saying this. And as history, it's just completely false. Uh, at no point were the major decisions about engagement with China, uh, reliant on the assumption that China would become a democracy or a liberal Western-type society. Nixon engaged China as a balance to the Soviet Union. Right. Then uh, the administration that actually normalized relations with China was the Carter administration, As it happens, I was head of the Asia Policy Task Force in the campaign, and we certainly never mentioned uh, uh, democratization or social liberalization. Mike Oxenberg was the China guru in the administration, and he testified very eloquently that the United States has no capacity to change Chinese politics. Uh, and he wrote in Foreign Affairs about that. Uh, I, I know from personal uh, firsthand knowledge that Brzezinski and Carter uh, both shared that view. Um, then uh, WTO, Permanent Trade uh, uh, relations, or what was called uh, most favored nation status at the time, was the next big issue. And I was heavily in, involved in, in, in uh, testifying for American business on that issue. And the business community, specifically the American Chamber of Commerce from Hong Kong, uh, changed enough votes on economic grounds to make that, uh, that effort to take away most favored nation status, uh, fail. Uh, and indeed the argument at the time was not that engagement with China would bring liberalization. Almost all the Democrats, including initially President Clinton, were arguing very strongly that, that, uh, allowing normal trade relations with China would encourage uh, dictatorship. Um, uh, the next, the next uh, issue of, of engagement was WTO membership. I went back and I reviewed all the uh, congressional testimony for both the MFN decision and the WTO decision, and I couldn't find any administration tex- testimony that said uh, that engagement would democratize China or lead to a much more liberal society. The closest was Larry Summers' testimony that it would uh, facilitate better rule of law in China, and, and, that, and that actually happened. So. All along, the argument was that engagement would would enhance peace and it would enhance prosperity. And and that engagement was a complete success. We've had half a century of uh, peace and the prosperity of the world has increased specifically because of U.S.-China engagement more than at any time in all of world history. So in both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, you have completely phony lines uh, uh, leading policy.
0: And have you seen the the, um, State Department, the document that came out called the Elements of the China Challenge, that the policy planning staff came out? I wonder if that's going to be a blueprint for the Biden administration. Or, in other words, do you see a a change occurring um, between the two administrations?
1: I I think there will be change. Uh, The Biden administration is going to take a much more professional approach. Uh, Trump's policy and Pompeo's were essentially policy by tweets. Uh, It was not coordinated. It, It was very heavily based on on made up stories. Uh, uh, Vice President Pence led on China policy with uh, an argument that China's major strategic initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative, was a conscious design to get third world countries deeply indebted and, and make them subordinate in, in foreign policy because of the debt. Every professional review of the situation has come to exactly the opposite conclusion, and and, and he made up facts about uh, a port in Sri Lanka that simply weren't true. Uh, that kind of stuff is not going to happen under Biden. The other thing is that there will be a certain balance in the way Biden presents his policy. Uh, the Trump policy was defined by speeches, four speeches by by uh, uh, Barr and Pompeo uh, and Pence, and uh, it was all demonization. It, it, uh, everything was evil about China, and it, it created a McCarthyite atmosphere that has absolutely terrified Chinese in America and Chinese Americans. That's not going to happen under Biden. But, but relations with China are going to remain very difficult and tough under Biden. That is not going to change. And that's because China has adopted policies in, in Xinjiang and and Hong Kong, and on economic and maritime issues that the U.S. simply has to oppose. Mm
0: -hmm. So, yeah, so it's not going to be a kumbaya moment. No. But certainly China, I, I, I can only imagine the confusion that must have been caused over the last four years in the Chinese bureaucracy. And then they themselves have lashed out, as you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has adopted a very strident approach that's unprecedented, as far as I know.
1: Yeah, their what they call their "wolf warrior" approach of being very aggressive and, and unpleasant has has uh, proved very counterproductive for them, as Pompeo's diplomacy has proved counterproductive for the United States. So we're 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 in an emotional spiral here that we we need to break.
0: Um, You know, another part of that emotional spiral and, you know, the the, um, dialogue here in the United States about losing jobs to China, you say is a myth as well, that we can't really blame American job losses in manufacturing on China's ascent. And I think um, that's really worth exploring.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely crucial to the relationship. Uh, all the research has shown that, first of all, the decline of manufacturing jobs is continuous since 1947. Uh, if you look at the curve uh, of that decline, uh, you can't even see where China is. Uh, comes in. Um, hmm. And that's because most of the decline is caused by uh, technological change. We can build cars now with very few worker hours. It, it, it's, it's all done by the technology, the robots, the automation. Uh, and so about six out of seven manufacturing job losses are caused by automation, and one out of seven is caused by globalization, and of that one out of seven, China's a a substantial part. But what's happened is that both of our political parties have an interest in blaming all the job losses on China. For the Democrats, the uh, the manufacturing unions are very part of their political base, and the AFL-CIO is particularly close to Nancy Pelosi. So there's a a big problem that's very difficult to solve, and and that's the the decline of manufacturing employment because of automation, manufacturing jobs are going the same way that agricultural jobs went. Uh, once upon a time, 98% of Americans worked in agriculture, and now it's more like 2%. And that's not because Peru stole all our agricultural jobs, it's because uh, they were automated. Mm-hmm. Now, solving that domestic problem is very difficult and expensive. so it's it's much easier for the Democrats to say, oh, it's all China's fault. And then they don't alienate their their union base, and they don't have to do anything about it. And on mm-hmm. the Republican side, uh, the, the Republicans never want to spend money or give power to the government for anything. And, and so they they will never uh, say, well, we, we should help these people uh, in Akron, Ohio, when, when the factory goes down and all these people are just sitting around hopeless. Uh, they, they too, f- although less so, find it very convenient just to blame everything on China. And, and ironically, this creates the kind of social discontent uh, because all these people are, are in, in trouble uh, that right. supports Trumpism. So McConnell and Pelosi become the enablers of a kind of permanent anger against the establishment, which is what Trumpism is all about. And that means we're going to have another round of, of Trumpism in our future.
0: Um, Well, um, you know, there are a lot of economic studies that have been done um, of these communities where uh, manufacturing has shut down and uh, the consequences are really severe. Um, It's not just that somebody's lost their job, uh, that that person's health has, has deteriorated. And as we know now, white males, you know, for the first time in history, their longevity is not lengthening it's in fact shortening. So um, also the educational attainment and the health of their children is impacted. And so the whole community um, has an impact. But the issue is finding the cause of this and proper solutions is what you're saying. It's, it's a problem, but not maybe we're, we're, we've identified the wrong culprit.
1: We've identified the wrong culprit. Although there's no confusion uh, among scholars and uh, about the cause and and that analysis of the cause has appeared in big articles in every major newspaper so it's it's political gamesmanship. It's not real confusion about the cause. and we know the solution. The solution is to help people move into the services economy. All modern economies are services economies. And even China is, more, more than half of the jobs in China are in the services economy. In, in the 10 years when we lost 3 million manufacturing jobs, China lost about 45 million. But their politicians said, okay, we have to move people into the services economy. And they did. But what our politicians do, and uh, unfortunately, I'm a Democrat, but unfortunately, uh, this is mostly the Democrats, they deride services jobs uh, as flipping burgers for McDonald's. Right. Of course, all these politicians are, in fact, highly highly paid people in the services economy. So again, it's a huge hypocrisy.
0: Right. <laughs> And of course, COVID has really made this even a sharper divide, you know, too, in terms of the kind of services that you can provide sitting in your home or doing what we're doing right now. And the one and personal services like flipping those burgers where you're required to be outside your home. So it's, it's made it more starkly apparent, I think, to people. But it's, it's amazing how productivity and the gains. Um, in wealth haven't been equal. There's a huge inequality issue, which is also, by the way, shared in China. It's not just in the United States. The urban-rural divide in China is quite quite stark as well.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: So that kind of leads me to the next myth about China being a super, superman and a behemoth that is inexorably going to become bigger and better, and has, there's no, no way to block it or to change it economically. But um, you're saying, it, uh, and China's GDP just came out over the weekend, and China does have a positive GDP. It's It looks like it's doing well, but it's mostly an investment in real estate, not, for example, in retail
1: spending or the consumer area. Now, China's done very well economically. But they're headed for a slowdown. Uh, even the, the top Chinese economists acknowledge that in the in the 2030s, uh, China will struggle to grow three percent a year. But what panics Americans is when China says uh, in their manufacturing 2025 plan or uh, their new five-year plan. Uh, we're gonna dominate all the major manufacturing industries. And for some reason, our our politicians believe that when the Chinese say it, that's what's gonna happen. Okay. Uh, the same thing happened in the late 70s and the 1980s when Japan announced these industrial policies that we're gonna take over the world. And, a total panic uh, in, in Washington. Uh, We're old
0: enough to remember that.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, and, and what happened in Japan? Well, it turns out that government subsidies and other uh, things like that led to a few major successes, very expensive ones, and to many more very expensive failures, and and, and that that headed Japan towards stagnation. Uh, Somehow, when it's an Asian uh, country, uh, our politicians believe that industrial policy and highly managed uh, economies are much more efficient than than, uh, our market system. Uh, That's not what they preach at home. Now, Uh, China's going to have the same problems that Japan did. They have a lot more money for subsidies, but they're wasting it just the way Japan did. They've subsidized their chip industry to the tune of $103 billion, and it keeps falling farther and farther behind. They've subsidized the airplane industry for $45 billion, and they're nowhere near having a competitive airplane. Uh, Their car industry is dominated by Volkswagen and Buick and Hyundai. Uh, So, uh, if our politicians are afraid of China, maybe they should be very happy about these uh, Chinese industrial policies and the focus on building up huge state-owned enterprises uh, and, and and seriously harming the private sector, uh, they shouldn't be panicking about it.
0: That's definitely a, a, a Xi Jinping um, departure, isn't it? Because before the idea was private enterprise was going to be encouraged, but now it seems that that's being reversed, and we're back to SOEs again.
1: The private sector is being underfinanced, it's being controlled politically, Every, every company, private or state, uh, has, to, has to have uh, final business decisions approved or made by the party committee. That means by politicians. Can you imagine what would happen to Apple if we put one of our politicians in charge of approving all final decisions? It would be a disaster.
0: Right.
1: It's not that different in China.
0: Things aren't so copacetic in, in terms of that. And one thing that worries me is this growing tech divide. You know, having two internets potentially on, you know, to, uh, and also standards, I think, would create a lot of inefficiencies, actually, for everybody. Another issue that you brought up was this myth that war with China is inevitable, so we should focus instead of on the business issues we were just talking about, we should focus on building up the military. But you don't agree with that.
1: No, um, political scientists in this country are very focused on studying what happened in in countries before World War II. Uh, and the latest is, is uh, Graham Allison's book, Destined for War. And... You survey all these situations where there was an established power and a rising power, and three out of four times uh, the, the the two powers went to war. Now, there is that one out of four times where they didn't, and that's important. But the other thing is that the game has changed since World War II. Two things have changed, we've learned how to grow economies much faster. And and the second is, that if you do uh, the growth of a great power the way it was done before World War II, the advances in military technology mean the war is so devastating that, that both sides are gonna lose. And the way to become and remain a big power now has become mainly economic. So the U.S. defeated the Soviet Union in the Cold War by having a a very uh, effective economic strategy for itself and its friends, whereas the Soviet Union put all its money into the military and went bust. So we want an economic victory. And that's how Germany became the, the dominant power in Europe. That's how Japan became a big power uh, in Korea. South Korea was inferior to North Korea in every way. Uh, but then they switched from a military priority to a, an economic priority, and now the South Korean economy is 50 times larger than North Korea. It, it, it's clear who, who's won.
0: And Japan not having a, a defense burden certainly helped Japan's economy.
1: Yeah, and the same thing has happened with Indonesia, which is now the, the leader in Southeast Asia. And, and China's takeoff started when Deng Xiaoping cut the, the military budget from 16% of the economy to 3% and settled 12 border disputes so that they could focus on economic growth. That made them a big power long before the uh, current military buildup started. So e- economic strategy has become the, the key to to success. That doesn't mean you, you don't need a strong military, you do. But the military st- strategy protects a strong economic strategy. What's happened though, is that the U.S. has forgotten the lessons of the Cold War, and it's been dismantling AID, dismantling U.S. Information Service, gutting the State Department budget, and allowing institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and WTO to, to atrophy, uh, uh, to lose relevance, whereas China has learned the historical lesson. And their Belt and Road program is just a a, a recapitulation in Chinese style of the old US uh, Bretton Woods system. You you have development banks that lend for infrastructure. You have a drive to create common standards. You have a, a, a drive to liberalized trade and investment, uh, all the things that the U.S. has been pulling back on uh, in order to focus our foreign policy on the military, uh, China has has been picking up. Now, that leaves the question, why, is he, why after having this huge success is the U.S. pulled back? Well, what happens in peacetime is the Congress doesn't look for a coherent foreign policy strategy. It asks who's who's paying the bills for reelection. And the State Department and AID and US Information Service and all those don't have big lobbies to pay for re election campaigns, but the military has a, a, a huge lobby and tens and tens of billions of dollars. So they get they get the budget and in every administration through the Cold War, the State Department gets cut back, cut back, cut back. So we're, we're not making as big a mistake as the Soviets did, but, but we're making a mistake that creates a huge opportunity for China and China is taking that opportunity but the lesson of a shift to an era where economic strategies are dominant is that both sides can win. Now we, Again, we were terrified in the 70s and 80s that Japan was gonna take over the world. Uh, no, we ended up with better cars and, and the Japanese ended up with better products of all sorts of kinds uh, from us. And uh, both sides can win. They, you, you compete frantically. Uh, it's a very serious competition. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that it's rational to go to war.
0: You know, my father worked for USIA. And uh, I remember, and I think this was under Clinton, um, when all the libraries around the world were closed. And I remember... They, they were packed, those libraries with people you know learning of English and so forth. But I found out that the the saving for the savings that year from closing all the libraries was f- only five million dollars. So that seems a very sad thing yeah. <laughs> to me. But soft power. So what you're talking about is a combination of soft power and um, economic power yes. and competition as the as the way forward. Absolutely. So, with if you were to, th- to think about a possible scenario, though, for a military conflict, um, how do you see Taiwan? Do you th- think that that situation could be you know, a potential tinderbox for U.S.-China relations, or is that just a lot of huffing and
1: puffing? Uh, it's a potential, and the potential for a big war has, has just gone through the roof because you know, we made a deal in 1972 with China that uh, basically, uh, there were compromises. Uh, they didn't get the uh, sovereignty and control that they wanted. And, and uh, we didn't get the independence that uh, a good many Americans wanted. but. What we got was the potential for a vigorous, prosperous democracy in Taiwan. Uh, And that was what we wanted. Uh, And what we didn't get was the right to have a, a full diplomatic relationship and to have a military alliance or to send our uh, cabinet members back and forth to deal with with uh, Taiwan directly, uh, and Pompeo has just blown that up. Uh, he said, "Oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna accept any of those constraints anymore." Uh, and they're even they're even. Uh, uh, voices pushing for uh, a close, explicit military relationship with Taiwan. Well, pushing that too far, the Chinese will go to war. Uh, I've never met anyone in China who wouldn't support a war if, if we, if we uh, uh, push toward completely treating Taiwan as an independent country. Now, the Chinese have been misbehaving. Uh, They've been tougher on uh, where they send their aircraft and ships around Taiwan. Uh, But they've stayed within the the formal limits of the deal. Uh, Pompeo has basically said, we're we're breaking the deal. Uh, And so I, I have to say the risk the risk of uh, a real war has become much more serious. Hmm. And uh, South China
0: Sea as well, which kind of also makes me think about, um, you know, how uh, Xi Jinping has been a, a, a departure. And what you've said in your, you know, your sixth and final myth is that China is always changing. And that's something that we, need to understand it wasn't that uh, uh, President Xi is doing what Deng Xiaoping intended, for example. In other words, they're moving targets and evolution within the Chinese government itself. Um, And people don't see that,
1: is what you're saying. Yes, each generation in China changes dramatically. So from Mao's... uh, Vicious uh, totalitarianism with a totally closed economy. Deng Xiaoping opens things up and gives people a lot more freedom, and and uh, Jiang Zemin continues that. And uh, but the market, the the, the market uh, stresses uh, with forty-five million state enterprise. Uh, workers, mostly in manufacturing, losing their jobs was just too much. Uh, Chinese society just got totally stressed out. So the next leader, Hu Jintao, uh, said, No more of these market reforms. Uh, and both market reform and political reform just stopped. But uh, under him, the authority of the central government started to be challenged very severely. Ministers weren't listening to the prime minister. The local governments weren't listening to the central government. The civil society groups were becoming very outspoken. Uh, The generals were not focusing on how to shoot straight. They were focused on the next big real estate deal. And so Xi Jinping was hired to bring this all under control. And he's certainly done that, but he's overdone it. And he's in a position kind of like President Trump, uh, where he's got a mass support base and a a much bigger mass support base, even proportionately, than, than Trump ever had. But he's got a very, very discontented elite, which thinks he's taking the country backwards. So eventually, there's going to be some kind of reaction against this, and China may get much worse or it may get much better. But, but again, it will change. Uh, the the mistake people make in foreign policy in Washington is, uh, particularly the, the really xenophobic types, say, "Well, they always plan this kind of crackdown on Hong Kong." No. I was involved with all the leaders who were doing the planning for Hong Kong's autonomy and and for implementing it, and they were totally sincere, and they were shocked, they would be shocked at what Xi Jinping has done. And and if they could do anything about it, uh, they would intervene and stop it. there will be a reaction. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, is in a very difficult position having alienated most of his own elite. Uh, so we, we shouldn't base our relationship with China on the assumption that this kind of uh, in, increasing repression at home and aggressiveness abroad are eternal. Maybe they will be, but this is not something that was planned from decades ago and, and was always going to be implemented.
0: I really loved um, the last paragraph of your article. I love this, this one, one uh, sentence. The next version of China will be either much better or much worse. America must be prepared for either. And I'm wondering what you think about uh, U.S. businesses in China, what do you think they can expect over this next four years now?
1: Well, the role of American businesses has evolved tremendously over time. In the early days, uh, business was treated very well. Uh, uh, Enormous market, uh, much more open than Japan and South Korea, for instance. General Motors sells 2.9 million cars in China, and that's that saved General Motors from, from bankruptcy and dissolution. The comparable number of car sales in Japan is 1,000. 2.9 million versus 1,000. And the business community occupied itself with explaining China uh, to Congress. and then. Uh, More recently, uh, business found itself so restricted in terms of market share that uh, it's fundamentally crippled. Uh, For instance, why was Huawei in a position to uh, take over the world of 5G? Well, Huawei has access to the European market, the U.S. market and the Chinese market, which happens to be the biggest one, or it did. And Ericsson and Nokia, which are the big global competitors, only have access to the European-American and a very small part of the Chinese market. So Huawei could could, uh, have an R&D budget much bigger than Nokia and Ericsson combined. It was just going to slaughter them. Uh, And that's... That's the story of the current relationship in China. They're no longer a developing country that that can can wall itself off and and, and not have big consequences for the rest of the world. Those consequences can be absolutely devastating, and so American business uh, demanded that Washington do something. Uh, but the Trump administration did all the wrong things. Business wanted the problems solved. They didn't want the problems intensified to such a degree that they become unsolvable. And right now we're in a spiral that risks making these problems, even somebody with the best of intentions to exit this spiral. Where do you draw the boundary in saying, well any any uh, business with military connections we're going to we're going to sanction. They said all the telephone companies have to be sanctioned because they have some connection with the military. Well, by that kind of standard, we shouldn't be doing business with virtually anybody in China. Uh, how do we get out of that spiral and so things are going to get worse and worse for American business uh, in market share terms, uh, but still, it's a huge market that they can't they can't afford to give up. So this is going to be the great conflict uh, of the next decade, really. Uh, if Biden tries to right the balance. Uh, the Republicans are going to accuse him of being soft on China.
0: So are you working on a new book, I hear? Can you tell us anything about it?
1: I'm I'm working on publications about Sino-American relations. And uh, the big long-term project is about uh, democracy and dictatorship as they affect economic development. And there I'm looking at the Philippines, and South Korea, and China, and India, uh, and Thailand, and Japan. The basic conclusion of that project is that in certain kinds of situations, democracy is ideal, but in many kinds of third world situations, it actually entrenches a a, a, a rapacious elite. And uh, so we need to be a little more humble about uh, the idea of democracy being the per- our kind of democracy being the perfect kind of system for every culture and every country at every level of development. And we, we need to start thinking about what kinds of variations of democracy would, would uh, offset some of these problems that a place like the Philippines or India has. Uh, but that project's a ways off.
0: How can we find all of your writing in one place? What is your website
1: or Twitter? I have a website called com. And on that, if people go to publications, and there's uh, a list of publications on each of many countries that goes back to the 1970s.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Bill, so much uh, for joining us today. Um, this is Lyric Hughes-Hale, Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and we've been joined uh, in our podcast by Dr. William Overholt. Uh, who is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Business. And we've been talking about U.S.-China relations. And I think that probably all of us, uh, including people who spend a lot of time in China, have learned a lot today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.